Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Did you say that? The future has come to pass. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that dissects the Left Behind novel series, so all of you don't have to. I am your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. All right. So here we are at the midpoint of uh, what I'm going to call the sophomore slump of the left behind series it's it's so bad like the first like because you know in the first third i was like you know what this is a bit slow maybe it'll pick up like a bit in the second part nope nope it's even slower yeah and look hey we had a lot of fun during the first one it was new it was fresh and we got into this one i'm gonna say honestly this is the first episode that i truly started to have a hard time like getting through this middle section of the book yeah it's it is because I uh, even uh, during come kind of I do a pre-show read through the section. There was just a bunch of like I was looking at like both the page and go most of this is pretty irrelevant and I can skip it. And that was like a theme for half of my read through. Yeah, it's rough. And we're gonna dig into what we can and try to pull out some of the nuggets of stuff worth talking about as we go through. So definitely don't skip this one. But this is something that we're we're noticing as we're going through this one. It's just man, there's. There's a, there's a lot that gets repeated and just stuff that's just not relevant to the plot at all. Right. And uh, before we get started, uh, since we started on book two, we've actually officially launched. We pre-recorded all of our book one stuff. I got us a little uh, holiday present. Uh, as, uh Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it should be right by your desk, Shane. Oh, sick, dude. You didn't have to do that. Well... Go ahead and uh, pull it out and share with our audience what you got. Okay, hold on. Let me get this this packaging open. Oh, my God. Oh, this is the first time that I wish we were a, uh, a live stream or a video podcast because I am holding in my hand mint in the wrapping a copy of the VHS. If you find this tape, play it immediately. Your future may depend on it. Have You Been Left Behind tape created by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. It actually says on the front, based on the video described in the Left Behind novel, Oh my God, dude, this is a treasure. <laughs> yeah, and I actually, I got that specific item for a specific reason. Uh, one of the things that I talked about uh, in book one, the the big reason I was uh, kind of tied to doing this project uh, was because all about um, uh, the idea of uh, a meta narrative in religion. Before I go on, I want to ask you a quick question. Are you familiar with uh, who Blaise Pascal is? 
Uh, yeah. So Blaise Pascal was the uh, the philosopher who is probably most famous for something called Pascal's Wager. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, and in Pascal's Wager, uh, they uh, say that human beings uh, bet with their lives if God exists or not. And uh, I think Pascal's Wager is a little bit too narrow of a thing because it's kind of, I, I like to refer to it more like Pascal's Casino. Like once you go in to the whole debate on whether or not there is a God or not, you start, there's like a whole bunch of different like places that you can kind of bet to get the right outcome or not. So you can go to Pascal's Blackjack Table, Pascal's Roulette Table. Pascal's slot machine. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of places. But in the terms of our podcast, we kind of have two things. One, we are completely correct about our interpretation, no matter which one of us is uh, right in our kind of uh, standing. Either we're right in criticizing Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins for all of uh, their uh, novels and all the pretty much the grifting that they've done, or we're wrong and that tapes will be very very important one day. Oh yeah, this is a this is now my lifeline just in case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to have to dig out my VCR. It, I mean, I almost don't want to open it though, like cuz I legitimately used to see these in like Lifeway stores and like family Christian stores and stuff and like church bookstores. The fact that it's like still in the packaging is so dope. I'm so happy. I didn't with even this. know that when I ordered that. So that just that just makes it an extra relic item. So thank thank you, bud. Well, no problem, man. So yeah, it 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 shall stay uh, shrink wrapped unless the actual rapture happens. Yeah, we can we can still watch it on YouTube and review it, but this this will stay like in a in an important place in my house. Well, heck yeah. So with uh, that theological uh, unwrapping out of the way, we can begin with the second part of Tribulation Force, the continuing drama of those left behind. All right, let me put my, my new Rapture tape right here on my bookshelf. Okay, so when we left off last time, we had seen more evidence of Eli and Moisha, the two witnesses in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall, and they on uh, CNN had incinerated some of their attackers with what Buck and the others noticed to be fire coming from their mouths. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, probably one of the most eventful and metal parts of the entire book. That was a, that was a highlight. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, if you're if you liked that part, stay tuned. There's there's more where that came from. So we move from there into another Trib Force meeting. And something I'm starting to notice this time around that I'm reading these books is that a lot of these Trib Force meetings early on become ways to advance not just the interpersonal plot between the characters, but also to drop information about prophecy, about revelation, and about the plot events that are going to come later. This particular one, though, doesn't really do that. I I found that this one was way more focused on the interpersonal stuff, specifically regarding Chloe. Yeah, because Chloe, she uh, she kind of uses her time in this meeting to kind of like throw some jabs at Buck. She just goes, uh, oh, uh, can we actually just talk about like what the rules for morality is for new believers? You know, just to, just to see if anyone missed it. Buck is just like, well, uh, 
Uh, okay, uh, I think uh, everything kind of that before the rapture still applies, but we could uh, w- we could schedule a meeting about purity if if you want, Chloe. Yeah, because she's specifically talking about like dating and relationships, and this is all under that context of sex only exists within the bounds of marriage. And I will peel back the curtain a little bit on the worldview I was brought up in is that even dating, if you were dating multiple people and kind of shopping around, that's kind of frowned upon. Yeah. Not to the point where they say it's a sin and don't do it, but the way it was phrased to us always in church and especially in youth group and stuff was like, you need to be looking for a partner and establishing positive friendships that can grow into something else, not constantly shopping around for the person you're going to marry. Mm-hmm. You know, just let God bring the right person to you rather than trying to go out and date. It wasn't exactly that hardcore in mine. It was, they kind of uh, said, oh, it's good, you know, to like date and stuff, but always remember your intentions when doing it was kind of their like whole big thing. Like always make sure that the uh, the relationship is pure, which we'll get into a lot of this uh, this purity stuff. Yeah, that word purity comes back a little bit in different forms. So yeah, we're going to be talking about that later. So Chloe is passive aggressive, throwing jabs at Buck. And as we remember from last episode, the reason why is because she saw a woman in his apartment. That woman said she was there to pick up her fiance. She assumes this is Buck's fiance. And she's also getting flowers from an anonymous source. She threw them in the trash. So Chloe's not happy right now, especially with Buck, but they're not communicating about it. And this is one of the things that made me so angry about how much attention this gets at this portion of the book. After that, Buck has had enough. He knows that Chloe's angry about something and he's going to go drive over there and he's going to set her straight. He talks to Rayford for a second, just like, hey man, like, do you mind if I come over there? And Rayford's just like, oh, that's exactly what I want you to do. (laughs) Yeah, more casual misogyny stuff of them just being like, hey, uh, let's set this crazy girl straight, you and I, huh? So they come up with some sitcom level antics of like, Buck's going to come over, Ray's not going to tell Chloe, Buck's going to come to the door, and then Chloe's going to see him and then everything's going to be okay. And then at some point, Chloe asks Ray like what his plans are and what's going on for the night. And Ray just like straight up lies to her. Yeah. Like it's a casual lie. It's a white lie. But this is something that as a Christian, especially in this I, this kind of worldview, uh, you don't do that. Like you don't lie. And yet they turn around and they put it into the story as this plot point And it's just sort of brushed off. And that was something that we were taught growing up is that regardless of intention, regardless of why you're doing it, don't lie. You know, they told you even a little white lie is is still a sin. And this never gets addressed. This was one of the scenes in the book that even though like it was like a small like thing for me to be like, oh man, this is really good. But like compared to the other stuff, this is kind of like it's a very comedic sitcom, like you said, moment. It is, but then when you think about it, oh yeah, yeah. At least for me, when yeah, when I started thinking about it and the way that the male characters conduct themselves in this scene, and I'm I'm not gonna get too hung up on this, Chloe very specifically and like very definitively says, Go home, Buck call you tomorrow, get off my porch. And he won't, (laughs) like he won't take no for an answer, which I think that they're trying to paint as like brash and romantic, but it's really just kind of harassment. Right, okay, yeah. Cause like that was kind of like part of my second thoughts too. Cause after I kind of get past like the, oh, the fun sitcom moment, it is just like, oh, this is kind of just like two grown men orchestrating like a very sneaky move. Even though they're clear something up it's still it is very still 
creepy. Yeah, and it, it is. It's weird. And I, I know it's trying to play it for like, it's supposed to be light and comedic and like, oh, endearing. But it just reads very differently when these two older men are like doing this for this 20-year-old girl. It, it, it doesn't read the same way that I think that they think it does. So Chloe steps out and Buck is now pretending to have slept on the porch. Right. Um, not a lot of time has passed, but he's being a weirdo and pretending to have slept on the porch. Chloe, after having to get the door and he's there, she's just like, go home, Buck. And then she leaves. Well, he's just like, well, you know what? I'm going to like prove to her that like, I I really do care. So I'm just going to just camp on this this lady's porch. Dude, that's not normal. People don't do that. You're being a weirdo. Like he's he does this weirdo stuff. He did it in the first book when he like bought the seat next to her and now he's doing weirdo stuff here. The romance between Buck and Chloe like just doesn't come off as cute. It's just weird. Finally, he wears her down. That's cool. And she lets him inside. They kind of have it out. They have a little bit of a back and forth. She finally comes out with what this is all about, about the flowers and everything. And he just goes, I don't know what flowers you're talking about. And then she's just like, wait, what? (laughs) And then we get the line that, again, just grated on me so hard. For once, Chloe was silent. Ugh. Ugh. Ah, he got the broad to shut up. Don't you just hate it when you gotta uh, work out this uh, a crazy scheme with uh, with your, your broad's uh, father to be able to talk to her, and then you finally get her to shut up? It says, hey, remember, fellas, uh, if your girl's being all hysterical, all you gotta do is wait for her to shut up and then hit her with the right line, and eventually her dumb woman brain will 404 and short-circuit itself. Like, that's the whole vibe of this, of this chapter and a little bit of the next one, because we move on from there into chapter nine. Chloe in in this whole chapter and the ones preceding it is being painted like most of the women in the story as this irrational, over-emotional, stubborn, loud girl that all the men kind of have to corral and like control for. She's this weird emotional liability, right? Mm -hmm. She starts going in on Buck about like, and I think that if we're going to have a relationship and we only have seven years and this is going to be like this and then if we're going to have a future together and blah, 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 blah. and like it hasn't been that long since they've met. They haven't really gone on any dates, so to speak. Like they've had dinner together, but it was with other people. They had the walk through the terminal. There's been zero development in this relationship that's been on screen. They start talking in this way that I wrote in my notes. They're talking like the author trying to justify a relationship with these people and not the way people in a relationship talk. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And then we get to the point where Buck literally silences her. Oh, God. Like, we have a real woman be silent (laughs) moment. He literally just says, don't speak. It just hit me so hard. I was like, oh, he's just telling her to shut up. Like, the authors of the book are literally saying, well, if this woman would just shut up and listen, all her problems would go away if she just listened to what the man has to say. And then, oh, yeah, and Ray silently cheers, Buck yelling at his daughter. (laughs) Oh no! Hold on. There's a there's a specific line because he's like eavesdropping. But basically, Rayford just like, yeah. Can can you speak up? I can't hear you. Oh yeah, he's waiting at the top of the stairs. Yeah, yeah like the like, like the mom from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, like yeah. dropping on the phone. 
y'all are making it hard to eavesdrop. Either speak up or I'm going to bed. Like it, it, it just add into the the weirdness that Ray it, it really and and it's it's Christmas time, so um, we're watching you know Christmas movies. It's a Wonderful Life came on, and it really does kind of get written like a 1940s or 1930s kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Like where um, Jimmy Stewart and uh, Donna Reed are like flirting outside and the guy pulls his car over and goes, why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? You know, it's it's little commentary like that. It feels so antiquated and old. I think I might have solved one of those mysteries is one, Tim LaHaye, very old, even when this was being written. Jenkins, slightly younger. There's this thing in a lot of these these Christian circles where the old media from the good old days is okay, but modern pop culture is not. And of course, that window shifts with every successive generation. Mm-hmm. You know, there were generations that were like, the Beatles are evil, but, you know, the Ink Spots, that was where it was at. You know, and now we're at like, you know, way, way past that. But there was this kind of idea that like old-timey time media was fine and more pure and more appropriate for consumption, but not here. So they keep talking. Buck is able to set the record straight about Alice. She was just there dropping off some equipment. Chloe, don't worry about it. I'm not engaged. Chloe is embarrassed. She starts crying. They sort of have a little come together moment and decide they're going to kind of go on a walk, like a little mini date, a late walk. And they have a bit of a conversation during that walk so how's that conversation go well uh they they start out like you know it's a pretty normal uh conversation at first they talk about bruce a little bit because he's now the next candidate for uh who they think sent the flowers oh yeah who sent the flowers if it wasn't buck yeah that they get shifted to bruce because he's like one of the only other men that chloe knows uh, is how it's put which is Again, it's like a, a still a bit odd, but Chloe, who went to college and has made who knows how many friends and is 20 years old and has, has lived a life, surely it's only this one other man that's the possibility. It's just bad. It's bad. Buck starts talking a little bit about his uh, dating life. He even said, that, like, you know, one time he had a crush on someone in grad school, but she dumped him because uh, he was too slow to make a move. And then they get to the weirdest part of. Of this chapter chloe's just like okay so are you kind of like experienced or um uh are you kind of like new this whole dating thing and he says depends would you rather hear that i have all kinds of experience because i'm such a cool guy or that i'm a virgin and then chloe just goes experienced or virgin hmm that's a no-brainer definitely the latter <sighs> okay okay <laughs> Look, so I I said something in an earlier episode about the character of Buck being written as fairly asexual. Written asexual in comparison or contrast, rather, to Rayford. Because when we first meet Rayford, he's horny. And Buck, not written that way. This is this is not capital A asexual as what Buck identifies as is lowercase a asexual in that he is not written with any sort of sexual desire until later on. And even then, it's like a puppy love thing. It's not written the way that Ray's is. When they say Buck is a virgin, on its surface, there is not a thing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with not having had sex. That is not what is at issue here for me. The reason why I go, ugh, at this is specifically because when we're talking about virginity and purity and all of these things that 
inside this culture are held up as merit badges and badges of honor. And for lack of a better word, or maybe it's the right word, they are fetishized in this evangelical community. So when you read that and you read Bucks of Virgin, you may not think anything of it immediately, but there is something going on underneath here where your hero character is being painted as pure mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that they have not engaged in premarital sex because that is a sin and that stains you forever. There was so much propaganda, especially when I was going through my teens, of how you'll never be able to have a proper marriage. Your relationships will always be soiled. Lots of scare tactics, lots of propaganda, lots of really gross Oh, yeah, because, like, even even non-religiously, well, I mean, because, like, even in the school system, our, like, sex ed uh, program always kind of had, like, little bits of undertone that they couldn't, like, explicitly say out was for religious reasons, but that was always kind of implied, like, and if you get, uh, knew the, the biases of the person speaking in some of the sex ed stuff, it was apparent that that was what they're trying to shove at you. Did you, did your curriculum have, like, an abstinence-only thing? When you were yes, that was, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, there's a that lot of that. of that. And there's a lot of evangelical groups that spend a lot of money lobbying to make sure that school districts include that abstinence only sex education. Yuck. Ugh. I wrote throughout these couple of chapters, this sucks in the <laughs> margins. Like, man, this sucks. And, and no more do I feel it than here because they say things like that Chloe is uncomfortable with the word sex. No, no, Chloe's not uncomfortable. Buck is. Oh, I don't. I one of them. Yeah, I. I yeah, forgot. yeah. I, one of them is just like, oh, don't say that word. Yeah, because uh, yeah, if you don't mind, see, I'm only thirty and feel like an old timer when you use the word sex. So maybe you should spare me, because then oh, we get we're getting to the other big misogynistic thing where like then Buck is like uh like Chloe's like all right, so I assume that since I've asked you like what your sexual experience is, you you should probably be asking about mine. And like, it was a bit weird because Buck is just like, then you're madly in love with me and, and you find out something that you can't live with. Meaning that if, if she had have engaged in it, that would be a big to do. Yeah, and that's weird and gross. So more weird and gross, like especially when it comes to women and, and sex and stuff. This one also stuck out to me when somebody says, what are the odds that these two unmarried people are virgins? Like they, again, they both pulled out like a merit badge or a badge of honor. That bothered me because there are a lot of people out there who are virgins. There are a lot of grown people out there who haven't had sex either by choice or just circumstance. That's not a like thing, you know, I don't know, to feel superior by way of singling it out. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's also like, hey, there's a lot of people that also have had sex and you're not better than them because of this. It's reinforcing what I think is a very unhealthy view on sex. Not a fan. Not a fan at all. Uh, I totally agree with you on that one. And uh, with with the the, with the line that she just uh, shared, we're actually to the end of a weird sex talk. So round of applause. Let's go. Yeah, I mean, we're just bad, bad sex talk with bad takes and bad ideas all through it. Like I didn't realize in such a short span of dialogue, they can make me roll my eyes so much. Thank God we're moving on from that one. All right. So 
uh, there is one little coda on the end of that is that because they now assume Bruce is the secret admirer sending the flowers, Buck tells Chloe it's her responsibility to talk to him, which, all right, if Bruce is being weird and sending them anonymously and basically kind of weirdly harassing her from the shadows, why is it her responsibility? Right? That seems like something that you'd want to, like, make sure you have, like, a little bit of, like, at least one other person to help you talk about this. Or, like, I don't know, maybe just ignore it until the person who feels like it's important, like, decides to make a move and take responsibility for their own life and the things that they want in it. I don't know. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a, there's a lot of antiquated stuff in here. And it's this idea of, like, romance and stuff that's just not, it hasn't aged well. We end that chapter with some unrelated stuff, specifically a conversation with Stanton Bailey, the uh, owner of Global Weekly. And I wrote this down because Bailey says to Buck, love your article, fair to every opinion. No publisher of any outlet is ever going to say that. (laughs) Not behind closed doors anyway. Like all publications are going to tout their impartiality, but like Bailey going, good job, you're fair to every opinion. Nah, (laughs) like no one's ever going to say that. In this case, the, the 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 both sides of this equation are alien kooks and religious wackos. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't win with that one. We get a little bit more on the witnesses. They specifically say that it will not rain in Israel for three and a half years. And Bailey wants somebody to get an exclusive with these guys. I guess it's going to be uh, our boy Buck. And uh, at first, um, uh, like Buck is there's like there's a one little section I uh, I highlighted in the in this last bit. They're trying to figure out how Buck is going to be able to even get on the itinerary to go uh, to, to to all this. And at first, they're like, well, we can just send one less photographer. And Buck was like, no, send, send the photographer. If uh, some supernatural stuff starts happening, we need that on film. Oh, man, I missed that one. That's, that's actually really true. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll find some of that payoff a little bit later. So he starts to finagle that, and that moves us right into chapter 10. Buck talks to the religion editor at Global Weekly and offers to swap beats with him to get on the religion stories. So Buck is a Christian. He's part of the tribulation force now. He is in this religion and prophecy and end times thing. So what better place to have his talents as a star reporter get utilized than as the person who covers all the religion stories? And that is not going over well with uh, another guy that works at Global named James Borland, who is the religion editor there. And his email to Buck that he gets at the very beginning of 10 is I'd get on the phone and have it out with you voice to voice, but I think better uh, on paper and want to vent a little here before I get your usual excuses. You knew full well that I was in line for the tree signing of the cover story, the things happening in the religious capital of the world, Cameron. Who do you think would handle it? Just because I'm not your typical cover story writer and haven't done one before doesn't mean I couldn't handle it. I might have come to you for advice on it anyway, but you probably would have wanted to share the byline, your name first. The old man tells me you're writing it was his idea, but don't think I can't envision you talking your way into this one and me out of it. Well, I'm going to be in Israel too, and I'll stay out of your hair if you'll stay out of mine. Yeah, he gets a little curt with him, and I don't they have a call and kind of hash things out and Buck yeah. kind of throws him a bone? 
he immediately calls Jim and uh, they start talking that they kind of like shift around like, all right, since you're writing this cover story, I'll write this one. I'll help you out. You know what? We're we're all trying to work together here to get this out there. I just want, uh, basically it boils down to, I just want some good journalism out there. We can, we can figure this out. Yeah. And um, I'm going to point something out here is that in Jenkins's writing style, this is something we're starting to see. You can definitely see where he's going with things. He sort of signposts pretty well. Even when he's, we're doing these sections like this one that are mildly slow, he does signpost like, okay, geographically and narratively, here is where the threads are going to converge. Last time it was New York. Now it's starting to be Jerusalem. And so they work that out. Buck mentions the stories on the religion beat that he would like to cover, one of them is Zion ben Judah, Dr. Zion ben Judah. If we remember from last week, Dr. Zion ben Judah is the rabbi who has been spending uh, the majority of his life for the last few years compiling all of the evidence that he can find in scripture about the prophecy for the Messiah and finding who best fits that criteria. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be this big thing that he's going to be revealing very shortly during all of these different conferences and events and treaty signings that are going to be going on in Israel, I think, that week. Yeah. Oh, I got a correction. Hang on. I got a mea culpa myself real quick. Last week, I had mentioned that if the Antichrist were to appear and he were to be doing all these things like signing the treaty with Israel, moving the UN to Babylon, establishing a one more government, a one more currency, if he was doing all of these things, someone in the media would pick up on it. Mm-hmm. someone would be covering it. Even if that someone didn't believe it, they would start putting the pieces together. Looking back through my notes from previous episodes, turns out someone was on that trail. Do you remember who it was? No, who was it? Uh, it was Eric Miller, the guy who got uh, who got fallen off of the Staten Island Ferry. Oh, yeah. Okay, so he was, he was the... So they, they kind of did cover their, their bases a little they bit. They did. I, I owe them an apology. Because I, I tried to point that out as a as a point of bad writing or a plot hole and silly me. Just may call up on that one. Gotcha. Uh, another thing we get is uh, we get revealed who the next pope is going to be. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, Archbishop Matthews, the guy that uh, Buck interviewed for uh, the Catholic uh, last episode that he uh, interviewed for his uh, cover story. Yeah, that guy is uh, pretty much next in line. It, even Buck's just like, wait, what? And he's just like, I've got contacts around here. Archbishop Peter Matthews out of Cincinnati. So we would have an uh, an American pope, which is very interesting. I don't I, I don't know if that's ever going to happen in our lifetimes or that's that's very, very interesting. As far as I know, it hasn't happened, right? I, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not Catholic, so that's it's yeah. not a it's not something I've studied up on. So we also learned that President Fitzhugh is going to be lending the new Air Force One, the 757, same plane that Rayford is now training on, to Nikolai for his trip to the Holy Land. There's some interesting. Let's see. Does it get into uh, the the interesting thing about the plane yet? Or uh, that they're calling it Global Community One for right oh, now. Okay. So we get gotcha. the GC, we get the GC phrase again, and that's going to pop up again and again and again throughout the series, especially in this book. I did write this down in my notes um, that he's going to loan Air Force One to the Secretary General of the UN during what amounts to a big power grab. I just said, okay, buddy, sure. Yeah, the (laughs) the President of the United States is going to do that. The President of the United States of America is going to do that. All right. 
Because all that Fitzhugh is, is he's a, a boogeyman for a weak globalist president that has gotten into control of the executive branch. Like he's just a platform for these kind of right wing anxieties of we're going to get the wrong guy into office and he's going to cooperate with the globalists. <laughs> that's, that, that's all he is. So we also show that Fitzhugh is going to be the, is going to lead the U.S. in the first move toward disarmament. Also, all right, sure. Yeah, the U.S. is going to be the first one to give up their nukes. Okay. Uh, didn't they, uh, there's a little bit more about that too that I have where like they're even worried that like, they yeah, they're even worried because like, yeah, like why would the U.S. ever give up their nukes? Like, how, how are we going to make this happen? And yeah, dude, you can lampshade it all you want, but, like, the fact that it's happening is just so contrived. It's not good, man. <laughs> we get a little bit about Nikolai, that when he makes a statement on TV, he stares directly into the camera, looking into the every viewer's eyes, which just has big bad guy energy. And then we cut to Ray and Chloe making dinner at home, then back to Buck. Buck is now putting himself into the position of religion editor. We talked about that already. Then Steve calls Buck again. So Steve Plank is still is still acting as a good contact for Buck, a good go-between between him and the Carpathia inner circle, despite everything that happened at the end of the last book and despite the cover story for it where Buck wasn't even there, Steve is still keeping those lines of communication open and so is Nikolai. So Nikolai's kind of keeping tabs on him. We find out that Nikolai and Hattie are spending a lot of time together, um, which is, ooh. <laughs> Buck is really convinced that he wants to go to Israel and cover this treaty. So he's going to go along with Nikolai's invitation, but he's not going to fly on Global Community One because Bailey won't let him. Earl, Ray's boss, uh, calls him up and they have another short conversation about Ray flying Air Force One. Ray still goes, eh, I haven't quite decided yet. We get some more Buck and Chloe flirting and then Chloe and Ray have dinner. And the only reason I'm even bringing that up because it's not relevant, but there is a line in which Ray says, having cooked dinner, I got in touch with my feminine side. Oh, God. Uh, and uh, as someone who does the majority of the cooking in my household, especially since quarantine, fuck you. Right. And that, that gets repeated, like, again. Like, that's not just something that they, that a one-off line. Like, they, they really linger on, oh, man, Ray's cooking, so he, he must be, uh, he must be a little bit womanly. Yeah, actions are not gendered. Uh, roles in a household are not gendered. Things people do in a household are not gendered. Like, shut up. I'll make oh. sure to beep that out. But I had to get that. That made me really mad. <laughs> oh, well, then, uh, then we, we get into Buck uh, picking up Chloe from uh, New Hope. And he, he opens up, hey, little girl. Which that, I, I highlighted that just because it, it, it kind of maybe like, oh, oh, yeah. He rolls down his window and says, hey, little girl. Like, oh, God. Ah. I don't that these people are from another planet and speak another language. Oh, oh, and, and then uh at well, like uh they briefly touch on the whole is it Bruce that sent the flowers? And then Buck has the internal thought, it felt strange competing with your new friend and pastor for a woman. After that line, I just wrote all of this is so, so, so stupid. <laughs> So the trip force meets together and sort of catches everybody up. And we get the first use of the term tribulation saint. So, Gab, do you want to take the difference between saint 
in Protestant and evangelical versus saint and Catholicism? I know specifically in Catholicism, it refers to uh, a person that has died, that has uh, done a lot of good for the church, good for like Christianity. And also like, I think like the main point is a saint is someone that is explicitly in heaven. Uh, so usually after a person has died with enough church bureaucracy, you can be like, all right, we know for without a shred of a doubt that this person is in heaven. A lot of people in the Bible get sainthood status because, well, all right, it's obvious. Noah, for instance, that guy's in heaven, but Judas, uh, we can we can pretty much safely assume he's in hell. And then they do that for uh, people within Catholic church history as well, and yada, yada, yada. Protestant, it's a little bit more vague. I, I don't know the exact explicit definition of saint within Protestantism, but I think it is just kind of like, you know, someone that's done a lot of good stuff. So I can I can step in on that one because when you hear an evangelical use the word saints, uh, they are referring to anyone who has accepted salvation. Anybody. Ah. It's just you could say saint and Christian and they are anyone who is saved. They are they are interchangeable. Huh. Okay. So if if you have a group of Christians in a room that is a gathering of saints, it just means sanctified, redeemed, saved, delivered. You know, you hear all those different words to describe Christians. Saint is just another one of them. Yeah, that that about because I guess it's for them because they would argue like, oh, well, we can't know if anyone in heaven is saved. So we'll just kind of if you've reached salvation, then all right, you're good. Yeah, that's basically it is that because you go to heaven right when you die, there's none of this complicated bureaucracy that happens after. After that, there's not these layers of tradition and ritual. It is once you're saved, you're a saint. Congratulations. So that's how it works. And it's almost more on that. Well, it's not a religion, bro. It's a relationship (laughs) thing. So it and yeah, you've heard that one before, huh? Yep. So it brings together that whole idea of like there aren't degrees of salvation. You can't get more saved and get better heaven. Everybody's all equal. So calling everyone saints is just sort of a a very Protestant thing in opposition to the Catholic way of looking at things. So yeah, we hear the term tribulation saints, and that is referring specifically to those who come to salvation during the period of the great tribulation, which recap seven years from the signing of the treaty with Israel at the end of the seven years, Christ returns in his glorious appearing, which you're going to hear that term get used later. The midpoint of the tribulation is also relevant, but I'm going to talk about that when Bruce brings it up later. So we got our trib force meeting. What you got on that? Well, all right. So in the Trib Force meeting, it's mainly Buck and Rayford like trying to figure out what they need to do about their job situations because Buck doesn't want to compromise his journalistic integrity working as a pin for Carpathia. Rayford hates the guy and doesn't want to be flying him all around the world all the time on, on this new plane. So they're both kind of like stuck in what to do. And Chloe actually gets a, a cool moment where she's actually the one who's like, dude, like both of you just need to fit, take these jobs. These are excellent strategic positions for the tribulation force. Yeah, and Bruce encourages it as well. And I think that that's a testament to Chloe and Bruce, but more so Bruce because he's the one masterminding this, I think is how they paint it. Bruce being proactive and having this idea to get people in close to the Antichrist so that they can basically muck up his plans whenever they want and try to save as many people as possible. It's kind of a cool plan. It's subtle because they don't talk about it all the time, 
but Bruce's plan is is pretty brilliant if your goal is to bring as many people out of this seven-year hell period to heaven with you when you're done, you know? So then we go into some praying. Do you have anything about the praying? Well, I know that he uh, he knelt on his knees, and I even have a, a, a part that I highlighted where as Rayford knelt there, he realized he would need to surrender his will to God again. Apparently, this would be a daily thing, giving up the logical, the, per- the personal, the tight-fisted, closely held stuff. So you ever been in a prayer service like this? You ever been in a small group sort of religious thing like this where everybody's kneeling? They're probably kneeling on folding chairs. You know, there's people crying, you know, that kind of thing. You ever been in one of these? Uh, Yeah, that was kind of a a big uh, feature of uh, every week at church. Like, you know, whenever they would be like, all right, everyone, like usually at the big prayer at the very end of service, you would just have everyone kind of like kneeling and praying together and like coming together and just like big outpour of emotions, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's an energy to it for sure. If you are listening and have never experienced anything like that, it's it's a little hard to describe. I don't really want to say that it's just like a, you know, like a cool concert or something like that where everybody's singing along. It's it's less of that, but there is an energy, like a group energy that's going on in that kind of space. And it's a little performative. Mm-hmm. I think Ray actually says he couldn't get low enough to the ground. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Yo, I've definitely been in there and had people like sort of trying to out pray each other. <laughs> And I even want to like read that that section for a sec because I have that highlighted. Rayford oh yeah, go for it. He, yeah, Rayford wished he could sink lower into the carpet, cut a hole into the floor, and hide from the purity and infinite power of God. I mean, all right. I just imagine like a, a very like wily coyote like cartoon thing where he's just like saws and I don't know that one. That's the mental <laughs> image, but that's what I that's what I conjured. That's funny. Oh, and then we get back into purity again. Oh, yeah, the word purity came up again. Rayford glanced at Chloe. I apologize, she said. It was a misunderstanding cleared now. We don't need a session on sexual purity uh, during the tribulation. Buck says that referring to like, you know, last time we met, you know, there seemed to be some questions about relationships. Um, uh, What was up with that? And they're like, oh, yeah, it, it it's good. It's good you now. Mean Bru- you mean Bruce? Yeah, yeah, Bruce. Yeah, two guys with B's and U's in their names. And, <laughs> and then we get into uh, Chloe drops. All right, who sent the flowers? Oh, yeah, and, and everybody just sort of like side-eyes Bruce weirdly, which embarrasses him. Like they put him in a really tough position because he totally didn't send them, you weirdos. Yeah, and then Bruce even says like, you know what? It wasn't me, but I should have sent you flowers because that seems like the nice thing to do. Everyone kind of uh, looked like that they got him, like that was their gotcha. And Bruce even is like, you know, I, I didn't mean what you think I meant. It's just that flowers are wonderful and I hope they encouraged you. Bruce is incredibly wholesome. This guy is a good guy. I, I love Bruce. Despite his previous, uh, didn't he have a porn addiction? When that, what we dis- decided in the la- in the first book, didn't he say he had a porn problem? I, I think so. Was that was that a plot point? I was. I think when he was telling his uh, testimony, he's like, "Yeah, I looked at dirty magazines or whatever." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Oh man. Still, despite all that, now that's 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 in the past. He's he's wholesome now. 
So we move into a, a little bit more Ray perspective after that meeting. Oh, crap. I forgot to mention. The reason why this gets brought up in the first place is because Bruce brings up the fact they're going to confess anything that is on their heart, which is more of that small Christian group stuff of like confessing anything that you're struggling with. It's not so much like a confessional like you would do in Catholicism to a priest or the way that you would confess your sins to God. The word confession does a lot of heavy lifting here because what they mean is like, hey, are you struggling with anything? Mm Mm-hmm. So we cut to Ray's perspective. I think it's the next day. They're still trying to puzzle out these flowers, man. Like these flowers are such a huge plot point in this book about the end of the world. And it is bothering me. It starts to kind of converge on where the flowers came from. Because Rayford begins to be like, hmm, is it Hattie? Yeah, we're back to Hattie. Did Hattie do something? And seeing all the time that she's spending with Nikolai and she's doing things for him, Ray starts going, maybe it was her. And then he goes in to get evaluated and to actually meet the president of Pancontinental. I think it's Leonard Gustafson. Yeah, Leonard Gustafson, president of Pancon. And Gustafson drops some info that he shouldn't know. And mm-hmm. in, in all of his glad handing and his, his CEO, like, hey, how are you? Nice to see you. Oh, yeah, Steele. Uh, I bet you probably want to get out of Chicago on account of the fact that your daughter's being stalked. And he's like, uh, sir. Uh, and then he's like, well, maybe it's not obvious yet, Rayford. But I sure as blazes wouldn't want my daughter to be hearing from somebody anonymously. I don't care wh- what they would be sending. And he's like, what? what?" Did you get the feeling like Gustafson had maybe jumped the gun and spoken out of turn on something he wasn't supposed to say in the plan? I think so. Like a part of me, it kind of came on under that thing that we saw with uh, like, with some people like like intimidating. Yeah, there we go. Intimidating Buck were being like, oh, we wouldn't want, uh, it kind of came like uh, to me like that a shadowy, like sort of threat, but it could have also been like Gustafson just goofed. Yeah, like he knew that, but wasn't really supposed to say it. Mm -hmm. And so that happens, which amps up Ray's paranoia even more. Then we find out that Nick Edwards, his first officer from the beginning of the book, got promoted to captain, who can basically take over Ray's job, opening the door for Ray to take the Air Force One job. So doors are opening for Ray all over the place. Buck two. Oh yeah, and not only did uh, the Nicholas Edward get promoted, he got promoted by Nikolai himself. Oh really? Yeah, uh, let's see. Huh. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was that he got someone got approved by Nikolai himself. That was Ray. Yeah, oh, that was Ray's Ray. the one okay. who got approved personally by Nikolai because Hattie vouched for him. Ah, oh, okay, gotcha. All right, sorry about that. Because Nikolai asked Hattie for the best pilot that she knows, and she named Ray. Gotcha. Okay. Ray is then whisked to Washington to prep for the flight to Israel. He basically throws his hands up and goes, All right, I'm in. Let's do it. And we find out that Carpathia wants to meet with him specifically. And Carpathia knows that he's a Christian. Yeah. And the book hasn't really gone into what Carpathia's power level is yet or how much he knows or even knows about what he is or who he is or if he's just being used. There's all this talk in evangelical theology about how God and Satan use people, even if they don't realize they're being used. Mm-hmm. As far as Carpathia being aware of his own position within prophecy as Antichrist, we don't really know if he knows that yet. Now, we're going to 
get further in the books and there's going to be talk about that, but we don't really know how much he knows. And he especially doesn't know Ray. That is all starting to kind of get put out there as a, as a ticking clock that is over all of our characters. So we're back to Buck. And what do we find out about the dollar? Well, do- the, that guy in book one that was like, you know, I'd be good uh, with this whole one world currency thing if it, if it was dollars. Well, that guy is, is going to be a really happy guy because the U.S is going to go to dollars for currency within one year the plan will be initiated and governed by the united nations funded by one tenth of one percent tax up to the un on every single dollar never gonna happen like that that would literally there's no way and i say this all the time with all this new this new world order un stuff that's in these books impossible I understand that we had the plot device of Nikolai now has all the money in the world. That's there's no way. Right? Absolutely no way. The the most you could say is like maybe like that North America might do something similar to Euro, but I don't think it it would ever like currency conglomeration would never get to the point where everyone's using like the same credits. Because the minute that you did it, someone else would invent a new currency. Mhm. Three other like libertarian stem lords would be like we've invented four new currencies and you can only get them by uh hacking an snes cartridge of yoshi's island i like i like in this little pocket dimension you made where you have like these uh these like big snes like rigs just like with 50 cartridges of yoshi's island yes it is a bitcoin rig made of super nintendos you know that'd be a thing. I'm 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 imagining it and I, I, I want I want some art of that now. Yeah, instead of GTX thirty nineties, it's all Yoshi's Island cards. But it has to have uh blank save files on them. So we get a little uh, itinerary for Buck. He wants to talk to Archbishop Matthews and he wants to talk to Rabbi Ben Judah and he wants to interview the witnesses. And any time Buck brings up interviewing the witnesses, people are like, dude, are you crazy? They kill people. He talks to Marge Potter a little bit. We haven't heard from Marge much since the first book. She kind of talks to him a little bit about like, hey, man, I know you're like a Christian or whatever. Listen, if God sent somebody to save the world, I'm pretty sure it's the Secretary General of the UN. Like, have you seen that guy? So we're starting to see that your average people, your like non-Christian normies, are starting to view Nikolai with messianic reverence. Part and parcel to the whole Antichrist gig. Yeah, yeah, because it's kind of like, you know, I don't know about this... uh whole uh this whole god stuff but you know if uh if there's one man to make me believe in god it, uh, it's that nikolai guy yeah exactly also uh we we get word that uh, i think it's a uh, rabbi ben judah uh is going to be get, like an hour of spotlight time on cnn I, i'm not sure if they mentioned that specifically yet but that gets br- um, brought up yeah an hour of spotlight on cnn to deliver his findings of his messiah research which again seems unlikely maybe c-span like maybe he gets on c-span or like c-span three you know to do that since it's not it's not an american thing you know Mm -hmm. that seems incredibly unlikely that that dude goes on cnn you know i'm not writing the books and we should be used to this by now buck does kind of have a little bit of a think and a worry about the future like trying to convert his family his relationship with chloe like what's the point of this if we only last seven years And he's like, man, I just want to skip to the end of this and have the glorious appearing and the 1,000-year reign on Earth. 
I want to wrap around to a subject about the rain on earth. And I didn't have the forethought to pull the verses for this. And I'm, I may put them in show notes or maybe we'll talk about them next week because we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about this. It's actually the name of one of the books. The glorious appearing happens at the tail end of the rapture. Like I said earlier, it involves a new heaven and a new earth being created. Christ coming down to reign on that new earth for a thousand years. Well, I think uh, that might be in the one book that you haven't read. Cause I, I know like, like a little bit of surface on like a few of the lighter books, not too many. And I believe like after glorious pain kingdom come is like post book of revelation fan fiction. Yeah, it is. Um, I've read the plot summary and it definitely is. I have to correct myself. The new heaven and the new earth come later. Um, because the thousand year reign is on the current earth with the antichrist, the false prophet and Satan locked away. Oh, whoa. They are locked away for a thousand years. Then they get released at the end of the thousand years. If I'm remembering correctly, they are finally and truly defeated. And then the new heaven and the new earth happen. Now I know the books themselves are probably going to make this a lot more clear, but that's my memory of it. If I'm correct from scripture. Okay. So they talk about how Chloe and his meeting might be part of a divine plan. People believe this. So this is back to the whole dating and purity thing. You get told a lot in this kind of church that God's got somebody for you already. So that person's already picked out. It was ordained before you were born. It's a weird relationship predestination thing. It just so happens that people always believe that it's the person that they are currently with that God meant for them. And out to the side, I just wrote lol divorce. (laughs) because nobody likes to talk about that part oh going on i think uh we have uh we have a little bit more um weird anonymous gift plot chloe got some candy from like a secret admirer and it's very peculiar candy because it's always the ones that rayford would buy for chloe when he would be stuck at this one airport in New York. And he would always tell Hattie that he had to go buy it. Yeah, he would always tell Hattie. So that clicks like, okay, Hattie is the one that's been sending the flowers and sending all these weird gifts. Yeah, it pretty much seals it. Yeah, he confronts her uh, about that, and we'll get into that in a minute. And they close out this chapter, chapter 11, with talking about the ecumenical conference, which means a conference of religious leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, For those of you who are hearing that word and they hear Gavin use that word, when it says ecumenical conference, that means a bunch of religious leaders getting together. Pushing us into chapter 12, um, we get some Buck and Chloe fast track romance, like almost a montage. They get some Chinese food. He sets her up an email. So now you can always contact me no matter where I am, which is, it feels very dated. Chloe drops him off at the airport, which is kind of cute. Um, and they're going in and out of the terminal because they're the flight's been delayed. So Chloe walks him to the gate. And then they walk back out of the terminal to walk back in. I'm like, man, this is so pre-TSA. Like, that would never happen now. Right. <laughs> like, that is just not reality now. And then we recap the cookie and the wipe. We're back here again. Oh, no. And what might I say, the cookie, that's like main plot for a bit, for a good, like, 10, 15 pages. They don't shut up. Because at first, they're just like, you know, while we have a moment, we have time for a cookie and they they're like you know the first day that they had met chloe had eaten a cookie and he dabbed a tiny piece of chocolate from the corner of her mouth with his thumb not knowing what to do with it he had licked it off 
Yeah, they feel the need to specifically recap that gross, gross, gross thing. And man, I'm not even a germaphobe, but like, don't do that. You just met her in that scene. Come on, it, it was love at worst first wipe, Shane. But <laughs> At this great American cookie, you had this teenager that's just trying to uh, adhere to company policy because Buck orders two cookies. And I highlighted this just because like I worked in food service before and I feel this teenager. Buck orders two cookies, but he wants it in two bags. And the teenager's like, nope, I, I can't do that. And then so Buck slips Chloe some money and he's like, all right, then I want one cookie. Hands over the money. And then Chloe's like, all right, now I want one cookie. So they get around the the corporate can't have two cookies in two bags. Yeah, and like needlessly like give this guy a hard time. Like first of all, and and because you can write something different, Jenkins. You can write something else. You can literally write anything else. There's no version of this. God, I say that so often, but there's no version of reality where that kid's just not like, oh, two people. Okay, here you go. Here's two two separate bags. Have a nice day. That's not a thing. It's not explicitly stated, but I'm like, all right, the teenager's just like, all right, company policy can't do that. But what company's just like, nope, you got, if, if two customers come up, they get one bag if they're paying yeah, together. Welcome, welcome to Left Behind where we're rationing cookie bags. That's not a thing. It's not a thing, dude. Like the quotient of, like the not a thing quotient is so high in the middle of this book. Like I am, this section made me mad, bro. So mad. So they they talk about the cookie thing. I think I might go ahead and take this opportunity to say, I'm going to be real mad throughout all this cookie section, uh, unless the Great American Cookie Company would like to sponsor us, in which case they are the greatest thing ever. They will not only save your life, uh, your marriage, uh, but they will also save your soul. Uh, so Great American Cookie, if you want to throw us a couple bucks or at least some gift cards. If you, if you buy from Great American Cookie, you will not survive the rapture. You will be saved. Uh, yeah, that I w- we will say that if they choose to sponsor us. If not, then, uh, then they can go to hell. I'm sure they're sponsor us now. <laughs> I, look, I gave them an ultimatum. So they make an agreement since uh, they're kind of in a rush and they can't eat their cookies together. They're going to work out a, a way to like, just be thinking about me when you're eating this cookie and we'll eat it together that way. All right, man. It's cute. Like that, that's so, so they managed to do something kind of cute and not weird. Like it's a little weird, but it's not like heavy breathing weird. You know what I mean? Like, this is a cute thing that, like, you would do with, like, your college girlfriend or whatever when you guys left for winter break or something. Right. And, uh, so, yeah, yeah, kudos to the book for that, for giving us uh, a one completely or almost completely wholesome moment. Then uh, you have a small section. Rayford uh, awakes and sees the cookie on the counter, and he almost eats it, but he doesn't. He just leaves a note that said, hope you don't mind, I couldn't insist. And on the back of the note, he just like, just kidding, and puts it on top of the bag. Right. It's so dumb. So much ink is wasted on these cookies. Like, it, it feels like he was trying to reach a page count, kind of like we're having to try to reach a minute count on this very, very stretched out episode. So to get into something that actually is plot relevant, now Buck is going to meet with Cardinal Archbishop Peter Matthews, because sometimes they say cardinal, sometimes they say archbishop. I'm going to confess, I don't know the hierarchy, but... Uh, cardinal is right under Pope. Like, cardinals are the ones that, like, oh, there's cardinals, and then there's the red cardinals. So it goes Pope, red cardinal, cardinal, 
archbishop, if I recall correctly. So oh, like, okay. I learned maybe something he's today. like in the in the middle of the two. Like, I don't he know. does mention being a part of the College of Cardinals. Gotcha. So okay. So I he I'm I'm assuming he's a and they're the decision makers when it comes to the papacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, the the College of Cardinals like decides next pope does a lot of stuff in the Vatican stuff like that. He's described as a jowly man. Um, I'm going to picture him as boss nass going forward from from Naboo. I'm the the Lord of the Gungans. I'm going to picture him. Did you catch the small little almost blink and you'll miss it Catholic bashing? No, I, I didn't exactly see anything that's kind of bashed. He offers Buck a drink of champagne. Oh, Buck yep. refuses. He indulges because remember, kids, good Christians don't drink. Evil Catholics do. Right. I even kind of, I, I did highlight, but I didn't realize it was uh, exactly bashing, but I kind of see what you're um, uh, uh, saying there. But yeah, I, I and, and, and this just comes from all my years of indoctrination. Like, I can see what they're saying with this without saying it, you know? It's- Exactly. And uh, uh, there's, a, there's a few books that I probably want to get like before we get too much farther in the series, because, you know, they actually wrote some like companion books to the Left Behind series. And I didn't mention this in our episode zero, but there's just like it's just like a whole bunch of like revelation analysis. And they have like three books worth of it that they wrote during the, uh, the like th- them together wrote. Oh, yeah, dude, we got to pick that up. Nikolai refers to him as the initials PM, which he's like, what, does that just mean Peter Matthews? No, Pontifex Maximus, Matthew beamed, the Supreme Pope. Set your watch, that's going to come up later. We learn that Matthews has all but sealed the papacy, thanks to Nikolai, and he already knows this. He's kind of basking in it. So rather than being like humble and mild and self-effacing like you'd want your your clerical figures to be, um, he's kind of a hotshot, this guy. He's instantly written to be unlike. Likeable. Um, I think Boss Nass is actually more likable than this guy. So Buck and Chloe watch the announcement on TV from the ecumenical conference. The quote, since Carpathia has been in office, not a day has passed without a significant development. I just wrote, yeah, we know. Because like the book is trying to fast forward all of these things where gradually, it would have probably happen gradually in real life. Mm-hmm. They got to cram so much into seven years because that's what their prophecy says. All this is going to happen like now, now, now. Buck is actually standing there at the ecumenical conference. Um, Chloe sees him on TV. <laughs> um, and as she and Ray are watching, I said Buck and Chloe earlier, I met Ray. And he's eating his cookie on live TV during the conference. And Chloe cries. She's like, oh, that's my man. My man ate a cookie on CNN. And he gets in trouble for it later. Like, he, like Bailey gets mad at him for it, which is pretty funny. Like, so, I mean, come on. My man got up there and, uh, and photobombed one of the most important press conferences in recent world history. So, good for him. That, that's, that, I mean, after all, the rest of the, like, the stuff in this book, for uh, that is like, uh, that's the most realistic thing that we've seen in this book so far is someone like bombing their press conference on world, uh, on world TV for a girl they like. So, you know what? Totally. Thanks for this realism. Yeah, good job. Good job, Buck. So then we get into one of the things that beyond the currency really makes me go, oh, no, no way. The religious leaders of the world announced the formation of a one world religion, the global community faith. And I just wrote in parentheses next to it. Nope, 
no way. Because there's already kind of a push to uh, to to make like a one like a or a, a unified religion. Well, there's several different streams. There's the Unitarian Universalists. There's the Baha'i International House of Worship. There's a, there's already people trying to do something similar to that, and none of them are getting widespread because everyone's like, no, we want to do our own thing. Exactly. People want to feel special. Like yeah. they want to feel like they are the protagonists of a book like this. What is said when they're they're delivering their address is God is in all and above all and around all. God is in us. God is us. We are God. And I just wrote, okay, let's unpack this for a second. The reason why this is important and the reason why this is written the way that it is, there is a narrative through line throughout conservative Christianity, that liberal Christianity and liberal faith and spirituality in general is not in deference to God, that it is in fact a pathway for people to become God themselves, um, to find some kind of power within themselves, and that is inherently of Satan. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and actually, I have something. Kind of one of the things that has uh, that led me kind of back to any semblance of faith was this one book called "The Kingdom of God Is Within You" uh, by Leo Tolstoy. And it's just, it's a really good book. It's just Leo Tolstoy. He's uh, he's in Russia, and he's just like, you know what? People are trying to hurt me, but like, I don't care. I'm just going to be a pacifist and uh, love God. And he kind of the whole, but the tagline of the book, "The Kingdom of God Is Within You," kind of relates a, a bit to the the concept that you're talking about that if you kind of recognize that within yourself you just have like all of this uh like all that came before so to speak that that's bad like you don't you don't want to you you don't want to do that yeah and it gets into and i'm gonna go off on a small tangent here i was watching a live stream of uh some guys trolling a QAnon rally Mm-hmm. I think it was it was Hassan Piker yeah. trolling a QAnon rally. There was a guy who had a list on his poster of people under what he called the new age. I have not heard that phrase for more than a decade used in that context. And it's anything that is spirituality outside of essentially traditional Christianity is considered, quote, new age. Not new age like you'd think in your your Barnes & Noble, like your section that's got stuff about crystals, although that is included in there. But this whole idea of spirituality for its own sake or for the sake of self-betterment, not through God, is considered to be of Satan. Not wrong, not misguided literally from hell itself. That is what you're taught in a lot of these circles. So keep that in mind when you start hearing about religions getting together, finding the God within, all of that kind of stuff. They're going to sprinkle little bits of that because remember, these aren't just novels. They're proselytizing tools. Mm-hmm. And they are meant to tell you and to reinforce with these Christians reading it, this is what you need to believe. This is what is evil. If you hear this, it should ring alarm bells in your head. And I hate that so much. Uh, that kind of like what makes like me like even practicing like a, like anything kind of uh, like give me a hard time at times because like I can t- say like, all right, this is all where I'm kind of pulling all of my different like aspects of uh, of how I interpret things with. And uh, I'll just kind of get like, oh, you're just misguided. Like th- that's not like the core message that you should be looking at. Like even when I like bring up like, all right, I like stuff by Leo Tolstoy. I like uh, looking at the 
digger movement from 1600 England for inspiration, like all of these different things were like, no, you're, you're not exactly getting it. So that, that, that definitely hits a, a heartstring too, because it even like gets the stuff that I look up to and that, that, that informs how I live religiously. That's just, that's all bad. That's tarnished. And, and I can see where you would feel that way because when you get this very dogmatic, narrow view of spirituality that these, these books are espousing, it's really fascinating when you start to pick it apart, especially the history, and see how it got here. Because these things aren't believed for no reason. They just have historical precedent as to why certain things are seen as good, certain things are seen as evil, and what things do and don't fit into this worldview. I think that's really fascinating, but we have to keep in the forefront that this is also super destructive. Mm -hmm. So they get quizzed a little bit during the press conference, specifically by Buck, about what do you guys agree on? Like you're all these different faiths and a Rastafarian answers because if they think Catholicism is a false religion, of course Rastafarianism is going to be a false religion. And they say, oh, the disappearances were a religious cleansing. All of the closed-minded, not good people um, who weren't ready for this next stage were vanished. That is just trying to show that, oh, yeah, yeah, the world is prejudiced against Christians. Mm-hmm. So now we've got our one world religion, we got our one world currency, and we got our one world government coming together under what they're going to call the global community. They bring up that the Islamic Dome of the Rock has been moved, and that's another just one of the, okay, never going to happen. Oh, yeah, 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 that they're going to move the rock, the Dome of the Rock to Babylon. Yeah. And even the book tries to lampshade it, goes, there's no way. And then just immediately they go, well, it's happening. So, because the plot needs it to happen because they have to rebuild the Jewish temple. They do go into a little history lesson. I think it's either here or later on about the Jewish temple, which I found kind of neat because those are stories that I heard growing up, you know, in Sunday school and stuff. Uh, But they flesh out the history a little bit more. Peter Matthews is named Pontifex Maximus, just like his nickname, the Pope of Popes. I think that it probably goes without saying here, but I'm going to say it anyway evangelicals fundamentally distrust the concept of a papacy in general. Mm-hmm. You know, there'd never be a Protestant Pope, you know, despite what uh, whatever Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell ever tried to do. They would never be considered that. The concept of a divinely ordained leader of the mother church is so antithetical to the evangelical stripe, which is very individualistic in a lot of ways. And I say individualistic in scare quotes because, you know, it's a lot of, yeah, be an individual, be free, be rugged, but also do everything we do. Having another figure be kind of an evil pope for the Nikolai regime is is just part and parcel. Peter Matthews is taking on another figure from prophecy as the false prophet. They don't say that here, but that's going to come. Let's see. They get into uh, Bruce and Rayford on the phone, and Bruce is kind of trying to like hype him up uh, before he gets on this flight. And he he kind of the first thing he says to him is a little bit counterintuitive. He's just like, first Rayford, recognize that you're if you were encountering the Antichrist in the second half of the tribulation, it's actually going to be a whole lot worse. So you're not actually dealing with literally Satan now, dude. That's super important, really important, not just to the plot, but to the whole theology that Bruce drops that little nugget right there. And it kind of shows that Bruce is real deep in his books right now, kind of as the guy in the chair for all the prophecy stuff. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is, because the whole timeline for the Antichrist, and I don't even think they've talked about this at this point, is that for the first three and a half years, he's just a guy. He's a guy named Nikolai Carpathia who is doing the bidding of Satan 
but is not Satan himself. In the middle point of the three and a half years, he will be possessed by Satan, or they say indwelt by Satan himself. That's why there's actually a book in the series called The Indwelling. So for the latter half of the three and a half years, Nikolai ain't home anymore. It is Satan's party now. Which, uh, like, honestly, I am really excited for those books just because I bet, like, the the Star Wars level, like, action sequences and, like, drama sequences will be much more fulfilling in those. It, it does. They are. Um, it is just so much more crazy. Like, I think for me, around book five is when things really start to kick off. Um, a little bit in book four. And like, there's things going on this whole time and we'll see even stuff in this book that gets more crazy and supernatural. But for me, book five was what really hooked me with the the crazy action, sort of what you call Star Wars stuff. Yeah. And you'll see why when we get there. So let's go ahead. We got to cover 13 and 14 and then we're going to close out for the day. So Ray and Hattie meet up. Hattie is playing dumb at first and then they kind of have a little like cards on the table conversation that the point of sending Chloe the flowers and the candy was to try and convince Ray to leave Chicago so that he would be more amenable to taking the job. We find out Nikolai's not going to give Air Force One back. He's just going to be like, oh, thank you for this gift. Not this thing you're lending me, this gift, which shows that, you know, Nikolai's an operator. We also learned that Hattie is pretty convinced Nikolai's a Christian. Uh, that was the weirdest section. She's like, of, uh, of course he is. At least he lives by Christian principles. He's always concerned for the greater good. That's one of his favorite phrases. Like this airplane deal. He knows the UN wants to do this, even if they didn't think of it. They might feel a little put out for a while, but since it's for the greater good of the world, they'll eventually see that and be uh, glad that they did it. They'll look like generous heroes, and he's doing that for them. That's Christian, ain't it? Yeah, that's definitely a thing that Christians always kind of turn their nose up at either non-Christians or casual Christians or people that they consider to be lukewarm and say, oh, uh, they just assume that being a Christian means being a good person. So that's the role that Hattie is playing right there. Buck gets to talk to a another rabbi named Rabbi Feinberg, who was there at the ecumenical conference. That's where we get our little temple history lesson. Feinberg does explain the history of the temple, originally supposed to be built by King David, but because of David's sin, the task was passed to his son Solomon. We cut back to Ray. Ray is actually memorizing Psalms, specifically Psalm 91, and he's sort of repeating them to himself. We find out from Rabbi Feinberg, if you know, for people who didn't know this, the temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. We've heard him before, King of Babylon, and rebuilt multiple times. Most recently, during the Roman Empire, it was rebuilt at, by King Herod. Anyone who has seen a movie about the life of Jesus will remember the character of King Herod, who was the king of Judea at the time of uh, the life of Jesus. When the Roman Empire finally came in on a full occupation of that region of the world, Herod's temple was destroyed. Nikolai meets Ray, and uh, he drops kind of a knowing line. And so our little circle is finally connected. I know who you know and who they know. I know who you are. And he gives him kind of a rundown, tells him, hey, I want you for this job. Hattie recommended you. I trust her. If you take this job, can't be proselytizing now. Yes, I know about that too. Oh yeah, that he uh, he goes over again about how the plane will be given. So he just kind of echoes what Hattie says. 
We get a little mirror of um, the Matthews scene where Nikolai offers Ray any range of drinks that he wants and Ray's like, I'll have a Coke. So they go see the plane and it's state of the art. It's literally like a flying luxury hotel. Like it's, it's the most fantastic private jet you could possibly think of. And Ray flat out stands in his faith in the presence of the Antichrist, which is pretty ballsy. Right, and for uh, through a story standpoint, that's uh, that's a pretty interesting choice. Like he's doing it this early too, which I guess kind of ties into uh, the whole like vibe that they're trying to go for. Where like no matter where that you take your faith, it will always protect you. Kind of like I keep on getting like a Daniel in the lion's den sort of yes. scenario in like a yes. lot of these moments. Absolutely, and I think I don't know if they make any lion's den allusions, but I think I did on the episode where we talked about Buck going to the UN. Absolutely, that's what it is. And that's a virtue that they're trying to reinforce. So when they try to reinforce bad things, we talk about it. This isn't, this is kind of neutral. Take your faith with you everywhere. That is what they're talking about. Christians might put it, put on the full armor of God, which we're not going to get into that right now. It's a whole other That just evoked so much vacation Bible school. (laughs) I bet it did. Yep. How many felt suits of armor did you put on a felt board? Oh, so many. Chloe then talks to Ray and Ray says, you know what? Nikolai's really likable. If I didn't know who he was and he didn't straight up lie to me, I might actually like him. But hey, if I can work with the Antichrist, who can't I work with? So he's actually really casual and confident about all this. And like you said, taking his faith with him everywhere. He's like, man, you're the Antichrist, but you got nothing. You can't touch me. Like he doesn't have to say that, but he's able to operate with a level of confidence, which is a good growth moment, I think, for Ray. When you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Like that's uh, that's definitely a uh, a level up cleric moment where he gets some new skills after that. I'm proud of him. Yeah, proud of our boy. Prou- proud of you, boy. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move into chapter 14 as we're okay. going to finish out today. I don't think we're going to make it all the way through chapter 14, but we're going to stop at a very specific moment because we're now with Buck again. And I just wrote that Buck is in full journalist mode. Yeah. Um, he's talking to Steve. He is trying to get access to the witnesses. That is his big thing he's trying to do. He can't get to the wall. He's already tried. The crowds are too big. It's too crazy. There's too much going on. These guys are inaccessible. So he talks to Steve, trying to see if Nikolai can pull some strings. It's not that Nikolai can't. He won't. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? Yeah, I did. (laughs) Nikolai will not. And he won't because he does not want Buck interviewing the witnesses. He doesn't want to give these guys screen time. We have finally found something that gets under Nikolai Carpathia's skin. Yeah, he even says, uh, yeah, don't tarnish your reputation. Like he's he's actively trying to lead him away from even thinking about being near them. Like kind of like uh, saying like, oh, if you go near them, like you might be a little bit in jeopardy with uh, your current position. Yeah, he's like, hey, I already offered you the world. You better cut this out. Nikolai has a very strong reaction to these guys because in the biblical tradition, speaking of scripture, the proclamation of the name of Jesus, all of these things are anathema to Satan. He cannot exist within their presence. So the fact that these guys are getting broadcast on CNN, probably giving them a bit of a tension headache. Right. And a like almost literally, like not like, oh man, I'm mad at these guys because they're going to muck up my plans or anything. It's more of like silver and werewolves to him. Like it is probably like nails on a chalkboard. And uh, they even uh, confirm a prediction that or even more come to confirming. It's not explicit yet, but this, this is about explicit as we, we're going to get for a while. On the record, I think these are two elderly Torah students who are pretending to be Moses and Elijah reincarnated. So, oh yeah. Uh, Matthew says that. He basically calls them Bible 
cosplayers. I, I find it weird that like that, like, I'm not sure what the, cause it, it uses the term reincarnated, but I'm not sure what like the bit of theology they, that they use to say that they, uh, they came back. So I'm going to be interested to see what they pull there. Well, evangelicals do believe that Jesus was incarnated. And I think that a reincarnation could occur under God's terms. It's not just gotcha. it happens. Yeah. Okay. He tries all of his options. He tries uh, Haim, and Haim's like, hey, man, I can't do anything. I, I, I can't even get down there. Matthews won't help him, even though he's, he struck up a conversation with, with uh, Pontifex Maximus Matthews. He's not interested. He either can't or won't, isn't interested in helping him. But later, Buck gets a call from Dr. Zion Benjuda, who is waiting outside his hotel with a car and says, get in. We're going to the wall. Turns out Dr. Benjuda, friends with Dr. Rosenzweig. Rosenzweig was able to come through, pull some strings, and now they're headed to the wall. I did note, because I can't remember, but I do think she becomes a pretty major character later. They cut back to Chloe long enough to have her tell Ray that a woman named Amanda White, who knew Irene and also lost her family in the rapture, had called trying to get in touch and was interested in trying to find a church. I think Amanda ends up being a character later on. I don't entirely remember, um, but Isn't, I wanted to point that out. I'm pretty sure she becomes like really major, but I don't think it brings up in this section. I'll just leave it for next episode. Right. I, we'll, we'll, yeah. yeah, we'll talk about it later. So Buck goes to the wall with Dr. Ben Judah, dressed like such a cool boy in denim on denim. He's got a denim jacket, <laughs> blue jeans. He is just the coolest boy. He's doing the real, the full Randall flag outfit and he notices that when he's talking to dr benjuda whose english is you know good enough for them to converse dr benjuda refers to them as the two witnesses which is only done in revelation he doesn't say the two preachers he doesn't say those crazy guys he says specifically the two witnesses when they arrive at the wall there is a rabbi who is crying out to god to strike down these two blasphemers and uh dr benjuda translates for buck and then Buck and Dr. Benjuda notice something as the witnesses are speaking. What they notice, and this is specifically from the book of Acts in the Bible, as the witnesses are speaking, everyone is hearing them in their own native language. Because oh, okay. there's a Norwegian there. For some reason, there's someone who speaks Spanish there. And everyone is hearing it in their own language. Jenkins also writes, and some Asians too. <laughs> you know, Asians that must speak. Asian, come on, man. Uh, real quick, I actually like the one scene from the movies that I saw that just came up in my uh, recommended the other day was actually this scene where it's explaining that, like, oh, we can understand them. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's from the Tribulation Force movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, we also hear that Carpathia just wants to either snipe, bomb, or shoot a missile at these guys. And actually, it goes on record saying, I don't know why the Israeli military is so impotent at handling these crackpots, because he hates them. And around that point, we have, and this is where we're going to leave off, another young man with a gun um, who is given some sort of vocalization. Uh, he, he doesn't say uh, anything specific in Arabic or anything, but he, he, he screams. He runs at the witnesses with a gun and he runs into what they describe as an invisible wall before the witnesses proclaim over him, you are forbidden to come nigh to the servants of the most high God. Then they breathe fire on him from their mouths 
And we have a graphic description of the gold necklace he was wearing dripping through a burned cavity in his chest. And that's where we're going to leave off. We started with fire breathing. We're going to end with fire breathing on this episode of I Survived the Rapture. It's all come in a very fiery, disgusting, gory circle. Gav, how you doing? Well, I'm glad that we're now two thirds the way through this book and all we have left is like, let's see how many we have like less than 100 pages left of trip force. So I'm 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 very relieved that we're uh, we're another step closer to getting this one out of the way. Yeah, we are moving on, moving on and things are at least finally starting to pick up. Those threads are finally starting to come together. So next week. We will close out Tribulation Force, the continuing drama of those left behind here on I Survived the Rapture. And as always, I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And uh, don't wear gold jewelry if you're going to get burned to death by an old man with fire breath. Bye, everybody. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at RapturePod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And leave.